I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 857. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 1 offers us the sight of angelic visitors and ancient prophecies and glorious pronouncements about the Messiah. Luke chapter 2 tells how these events were fulfilled beginning with the great event that we find in verses 1 to 7. Luke chapter 2, read with me, this is God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David." to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This is God's word. Let us pray. Gracious God, meet with us and speak to us this morning. Give us the ears to hear your word. Give us hearts that thrill with the message of Luke chapter 2. And we ask, Father, that you would so work among us today that we would leave this place changed people with greater faith, with more cheerful obedience, and with increased hope. Do this work, we ask, by your Holy Spirit, We know that you'll do it because we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1920s, there was a joke that went something like this. One day, a young man from the country came to the city in order to call on a young woman. But when he arrived at her home, she came to the door nicely dressed but wearing a hat. That's the whole joke. And I confess I didn't get it either. And as sad as it is to have to explain a joke, let me try and then say why. When a man was calling on a woman in the 19th and early 20th centuries, he hoped to be permitted to enter the house, maybe meet her mother, have some pleasantries, and perhaps hear the piano played by the young lady in question. But when a woman answered the door in the early 20th century with her hat on, It indicated that she did not want a visit, but this new thing called a date. She wanted to be entertained in public and at his expense. The country bumpkin who comes to call instead of to date is the butt of the joke. The girl with the hat on is the punchline. Now, I mentioned this joke about dating, not to say something about jokes, But to say something about words, sometimes words, just a few words, speak volumes. 
But in order for those words to speak to us at all, we need to, we need to understand those words and to study that context. Well, understanding words and context is especially important for Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, where Luke's account of the birth of Christ is very economical in its word count. In fact, Luke pinches his words in these few verses like the proverbial Scott pinches his pennies. In just a few lines, he manages to tell his readers about a worldwide decree in verses one to three, about a prophecy regarding a town in verses four to five, of a time fulfilled in verse six, and finally of a promised birth that was supposed to be astounding in its glory, but was in fact astonishing in its poverty, as we see in verse seven. Now, in order to understand this passage clearly, we need to begin this morning, just as Luke does in these verses, by, by wearing our historian's hats and looking back on world events in verses 1 to 3. The name Caesar Augustus, dropped by Luke in verse 1, is a name that speaks volumes because Caesar Augustus was the first Roman to be declared an emperor and the first leader of Rome to effectively force a period of peace. Yes, wars were still fought out on the frontiers, but within the empire's borders, there was a peace that lasted for two centuries. If you've ever studied Roman history, you'll know all that. And if you're a Christian, you'll also know that Caesar Augustus was put in his place and given his empire by someone who was greater. In fact, if we read through Luke and Acts, we see that God was preparing the world to receive a king and a message about the king. Soldiers, solid roads, safer seas would later permit preachers to travel from city to city throughout the Roman world with more ease and with a news that would eventually turn the world upside down. In doing all this, God was preparing a kingdom that would last long after the Roman Empire had faded to ancient ruins and recorded memories. Well, as Roman power grew, Jewish power shriveled. The the Romans carefully eroded and then eventually removed Jewish rights of civil government. The Romans had conquered the Jews and gradually left them with the rights of religious government only. This too was important for the spread of the gospel because this loss of Jewish freedom and control created a sense of longing amongst God's people and fulfilled an ancient prophecy of a dying Jacob to his sons. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. The scepter, the rod or the the wand of kings and rulers had truly departed from Judah. But the departure left a question behind. Had the time come for the real ruler to be born who could reclaim his rights over the house of Israel and beyond? 
Well, as a good historian, Luke reminds us of the reign of Augustus because his rule is important for understanding the third gospel and the book of Acts. But in the second place, in discussing world history, Luke is also giving readers a date of Jesus' birth. You may know of a country that adopted the slogan, no taxation without representation. Uh, That's all the rage now on uh, license plates around Washington, D.C. A former pastor of this church once joked that the Romans held to the much older uh, principle that there should be no taxation without registration. And uh, that's what we see in the opening verses of this chapter. Luke tells us that a decree, some kind of administrative ruling, came from the top. This ruling or census, we know from Roman practice, was to support maxing, or matching legislation on taxation. They wanted to know how many people there were to know how much money they could demand. Luke also gives a precise historical reference, including mention of the governor, governorship of Quirinius. And more ancient data would need to resurface before we could regain all the information that Luke's first readers had about Quirinius. But what we do know is that on rare occasions in the Roman provinces, registration was required at the hometown of one's ancestors. And such a one was required during Quirinius's reign. This kind of ruling was highly disruptive. Travel was not easy in those days. And not common. This kind of ruling was also like many foreign intrusions, a source of great frustration. One more piece of evidence that people were living in a world where sins and sorrows grow, a world much like our own. Well, this was the state of the world, and it's just what was needed to fulfill an ancient prophecy about a town as we can see in verse four. For because of this decree, the man Joseph went from Galilee and the town of Nazareth down to Judea and the city of David. More words that speak volumes. David, the greatest of the Old Testament kings, was born in Bethlehem. And it was prophesied that great David's greater son would one day be born there too. Now, Jerusalem was also called the city of David, for it's there that he spent much of his life and there that he spent part of his reign. But here Luke is speaking about a birth in the city of David. And everyone understood that the prophet Malachi, or prophet Micah, predicted that the birth of the Savior would take place in Bethlehem itself. You, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It was a powerful prophecy, one to which a declining Jewish world would cling for hope. In fact, the Jewish teachers at least had it at their fingertips, and we know that because when the Magi, when the people from the east arrived in Jerusalem sometime later, and Herod said he wanted to know where the king was supposed to be born, the religious, the religious rulers at least knew right away what the answer was. It was the little town to the south of the big city. 
Well, getting to the town of Bethlehem, all the way from the village of Nazareth, crossing the country from north to south, this was a real inconvenience. No money could be earned during this time. Much money would need to be spent. This was an extremely costly trip, potentially devastating for a sole proprietor or small business owner like Joseph. Someone like a carpenter who would normally go through life carefully pinching uh, every penny, saving up each dollar for a a hoped-for pilgrimage to Jerusalem could hardly afford an additional trip of this kind. Besides, shepherds and nomads might have had primitive camping equipment, but not carpenters. A normal man would have to pay for a night in the inn each night that they traveled, or at least a night in someone's home. As safe as the empire might be, no man would want to leave his wife outside during the night. Well, it was difficult for most travelers. But what was difficult for most travelers, for Joseph and Mary, must have been nothing short of dreadful. Very pregnant women are not known for their ability to walk quickly for extended periods of time. On the day that she gave birth to our first child, Emily was not even able to walk 10 times around the lawn, and she had the handles of a lawnmower to support her. (laughs) That, by the way, was her idea, not mine. She thought the baby might arrive a little bit more quickly if uh, she did some walking. Well, my guess is that if the Guinness World Book of World Records was to celebrate walking records for women with late-term pregnancies, those who have had babies would expect it to be measured in meters and minutes, not in miles and days. And yet, Mary's trip would have required four long days of fast walking, if that were possible, if they were to try and keep the costs down. And if they did manage to rent a donkey, which all the children's Bible stories assure us that they did, she could hardly have felt much better. A donkey is not exactly a luxury vehicle. Once again, volumes are spoken in just a few words. This time when Luke tells us that Joseph made the journey with Mary. Mary going to Bethlehem does not sound pleasant, but Mary left back home would not have been easy either. Remember the words of the angel a virgin would conceive and bear a son. This is exactly what was happening, but it had every appearance of a shotgun wedding, of newlyweds expecting a baby. Luke chapter two, verse five, mentions that Mary and Joseph were betrothed as a way of emphasizing their ongoing purity. But we know from Matthew chapter one that they were married at this point. And married or not, Mary would have been treated with shame and distrust in Joseph's hometown. Elizabeth got a party when cousin John was born. Mary would not get a party when Jesus arrived. People would find it hard to believe in a virgin giving birth because it had never happened before. People still find it hard to believe in a virgin birth because it's never happened since. But it did happen. It happened in the town of Bethlehem during the first registration, around the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and Caesar Augustus 
was emperor of the world. Well, perhaps Mary and Joseph knew that they needed to go to to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy alluded to in verses four to five. Perhaps they were just avoiding local gossip back home. In any event, a worldwide decree dictated that they needed to be registered in that town because it was time, as we see in verse six. And so it was that the little town of Bethlehem received its most important visitor since the birth of David over a thousand years before. So it was that all the hopes and fears through all the years were met in Bethlehem that night. It's interesting to note that nowhere in this paragraph is God's overruling guidance explicitly mentioned. But it's everywhere seen, isn't it? It's clearly seen in verse six, where we are told that while they were in Bethlehem, it came time for Mary to give birth. It'll be obvious to our mothers that with all that walking, the baby could have come early. It could have come on the way there. It does happen sometimes that babies arrive before their due dates. On the other hand, it could have happened on the trip back. I mean, use your imagination. It's at least conceivable that they could have met an efficient government worker in Bethlehem who processed their papers quickly and sent them back home. And after all, babies do sometimes arrive late. But the time had come for the birth while they were in Bethlehem because there is someone who appoints all of our times. And this time which the Apostle Paul calls the fullness of time, was not merely a stopping point on the life itinerary of Joseph and Mary, an appointment that was on the calendar of their lives as each birth in the world is. No, this was an event that was specially set on the alarm clock of eternity. God made the appointment, marked the calendar, mapped the itinerary, And he did this because he had planned and his prophets had predicted these very events. Yes, all the days of our lives are written by God, but some events are made known in advance because they have a significance for all the world. This was one of those events. Mary had to give birth in Bethlehem because God had said so to the prophets. And the prophets had said so to God's people. And because the angel had reminded the Virgin Mary that the child who was to be born of her was to be the final king of the house of David, the true shepherd of the sheep of Israel. So, a decree for the world, a trip to town, a special time. And then in verse seven, we are told of the birth. What was it like for Mary to give birth to a firstborn son and to know that he was the firstborn of God? What was it like for Mary to give birth to a baby and and to know that, that she was a conduit of life to the one who was the eternal life? In fact, what was it like to give birth to the son of God, to wrap him in ordinary swaddling cloths and then have to lay him in a feeding trough? when it was time for mother and child to sleep. 
When the baby was born, the shepherds in nearby hills were told that they could find the baby because he was wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. As one Bible commentator has put it, in Bethlehem that night, there may have been one or two babies wrapped in swaddling cloths, but surely there was only one lying in a manger. Here again, Luke uses just a few strokes, but he paints a picture worth a thousand words when he says that Jesus was in a manger. It is one of the notorious facts of history that there was no room found, or perhaps we should say no room made for them in the inn, for this expecting mother and her newborn child. Luke says it so simply, Mary laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Readers of the Bible have long wondered how much significance should be given to the fact that the third gospel tells us there was no room for them in the inn. Was it because they were poor? Had distant relatives in Bethlehem heard the news of the scandal? Was there room for others, maybe more respectable travelers, for newlyweds not expecting a baby? If the Magi had arrived early from the east, would there have been room for them? The point that Luke is making does not seem to be an observation about the density of the population in the town, but on the condition, on the humility of the condition of a birth and the rejection of a woman in desperate need. Really, as one old author has put it, how barbarous all of this was. If there had been any common humanity among them, they would not have turned a woman in labor into a stable, a stable of all things. But this morning, I want us to ask whether even that might be too generous. I mean, do we really have firm grounds to be sure there was a stable, given that the Bible doesn't mention one? Don't we have hope that our hymns are correct and that the baby was at least laid in an indoor manger and not an outdoor one because it's too awful to imagine Mary giving birth outside. We emphasize every Christmas how humiliating it must have been to give birth in a cattle shed, but was it that good? Don't we want to imagine the privacy of a stable, a bed of yellow straw, Because it's an appalling thought to consider Mary giving birth either in the darkness behind the barn or in the busy courtyard. An appalling thought to consider a birth or the baby in two of the most likely places for a feeding trough at a busy old inn. It appalls us because of the reverence that we hold for our Redeemer It appalls us because of the respect that we have for mothers. To be honest, it's hard for us to fathom the depths of shame and misery which accompanied our Redeemer from his rough wooden cradle at the beginning of his life to his rough wooden cross at the end. For the sojourner of sojourners, for the traveler from heaven itself, no inn was available and perhaps no stable. Everything on earth was a temporary lodging for him. But sometimes, as he said, 
There was no place where he could lay his head. It was certainly true on the night of his death. Maybe it was also true in the night of his birth. In this one paragraph, Lucas told us about a worldwide decree, about a time, a town, and a birth. But of these four things, it's the first and last, the decree and the birth, which are most significant. One irony of the third gospel is the way in which Luke lets us see that God chose to have all the world register with the Romans so his eternal son would be born in Bethlehem. But just saying that is to admit that the truly significant decree that we've read about this morning was not Caesar's worldwide decree, but God's decree about the world. For as we see, as we read Luke 2, as we see these events, we hear the evangelists tell us each Christmas what Jesus would tell a visitor one night, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A promise, by the way, that extends as far as the curse is found. And in decreeing that he would send a savior to this world, God did not decree some generality. No, he decreed the details, the world as his stage, a trip to town, a time, even the trough for a birth. Because for our salvation, God decreed a birth for the savior that would not merely be humbling, but that would be utterly humiliating. I mean, can't you at least imagine the joke told in Bethlehem that night? There's this country bride who came to, the, came to give birth in town, but there was no room in the inn. And no doubt as she and Joseph were turned away from the door, they were the butt of the joke. Newlyweds, a pregnancy, and surprise, surprise, no room in any house or inn. I mentioned this sad joke about a bride and about the baby. Not to say something about brides, but to say something about jokes. Sometimes a few words can speak volumes. But in order for those words to speak to us, we need to study those words and understand their context. Yes, some were astonished at the story of the shepherds. For others, the birth of Jesus must have been the joke of the town. Did you hear about the pregnant newlywed giving birth behind the barn and putting her baby in the manger? But why? Why was the all-glorious Son of God born in such circumstances? The answer is that Jesus had come to save us completely. Are you a Christian? then you know that the gospel is the good news, that Jesus Christ came to take our sin upon himself and our penalty too. But Jesus did not only come to pay the price for the guilt of our sin as if the pains of hell would be some small thing for him to endure for us. No, he also came to take away our disgrace. Some of us know what it's like to be ashamed. We dread the thought that others would know us and our history, that others would see us as we see ourselves. 
We feel the crushing weight of disappointments and failures. We wish we could bury beyond all recovery the things that we've said and done or things that have been said to us or done to us. But you see, Luke chapter two is telling us that Jesus endured his suffering from birth to death, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him, the joy of our deliverance, not only from sin, but also from our disgrace. It was the joy of Jesus, who's the true joy of the world, to take away our shame, to purchase our glory and dignity with his humility. And his cradle was only the beginning. You see, there at least, he was covered by cloth. But on his cross, it was all stripped away. In the weekly humiliation and torture of a Nazi prison camp in World War II, Corrie ten Boom, her sister Betsy, and all the other women were required to undress before leering male guards for what was termed a medical inspection. She tells us in her book, The Hiding Place, how one winter day, once again humiliated and mocked, Corey found yet another page of the Bible which leapt into life. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known, had not thought, she writes. The paintings, the carved crucifixes showed at least a scrap of cloth. But this I suddenly knew was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us. I leaned towards Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood so sharp and thin beneath her blue and mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me, I heard a gasp. Oh, Corey, it had to be. And I never thanked him. Jesus came to save us completely from our sin and from our shame. This is our Savior. And yet with a few swaddling cloths, the offer of a manger, and no offer of a bed in which to sleep, the people of Bethlehem made no room for the king in their lives. Many since that time have prepared no room for him in their hearts or lives either. And many Christians have reflected that what the inhabitants of Bethlehem did in their ignorance, as one commentator notes, is done by many today in willful indifference. They refuse to make room for the Son of God. In his first coming, the joy of the world was the joke of the world. In his birth, through his death, but also in the long years while we have waited for his return, Jesus has been mocked and ignored and deposed. The king has not held the right place in our hearts. And for this, all the world must answer. In fact, each of us will one day answer. We must give an answer to the father who will ask of his son 
Did you honor him? Did you honor my son? Do you know the one who takes away the penalty of sin? Do you know the one who can take away the force of your shame? Will you give to him the honor that is due to his name? Truly it is for him that our songs should be employed, not for ourselves. Not only heaven, but also nature ought to be told how to sing this song. For here is the one who reversed the curse as far, it was, as, far as it was found. Here is the one who, who now and forevermore will rule the world with truth and grace. So what should we do this Christmas season, this day? Let us serve him while there is still time. Let us worship the one who was born in unimaginable shame so that we could die in peace and be raised with him in unspeakable glory. Let us give thanks to him now and then we will sing the wonders of his name. Let us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, as we think about what your son has done for careless people like ourselves, we can see that not only in Bethlehem but in every heart we should prepare him room Forgive us for the lukewarmness of our worship and the thoughtlessness of our lives. Help us to walk humbly before the eternal king become man, a baby wrapped with cloths and wedged into a manger, and then a man on his cross who deserted his grave so that we could live and reign with you forever. Do this, we ask, by your powerful spirit, As we pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen.